The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Today we're going to be talking about nothing. Has that been done before? A show about nothing? You want to go with me to NBC? Yeah, I think we really got something in. What do we got? An idea. What idea? An idea for the show. I still don't know what the idea is. It's about nothing. Right. Everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. <laughs> so we go into NBC, we tell them we got an idea for a show about nothing. Exactly. They say, what's your show about? I say nothing. There you go. I think you may have something here. That's right. Of course it has. Seinfeld was a famous example. But we're not going to stop there. What else do we know about nothing? Billy? Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You gotta have something if you want to be with me. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Uh, now there's a view. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. That one is mathematical. Nothing. A zero. A crooked figure, as Shakespeare used to call it. There's something spooky about a zero, the way it looks, like a blank face, and the way it behaves. If you've ever solved a math problem where you're asked to figure out a variable and choose whether an answer, a particular answer is always true, never true, or sometimes true, you know what I mean. You run through the choices and you think, wait, would this also be true if I plugged in a negative number? Would it be true of the number one? And would it be true of zero? It's true of a thing, but is it true of no thing? Of nothing? Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth. Oh, childhood. Must have done something. Something. Good. Hmm. That's Christopher Plummer in The Sound of Music singing along with Julie Andrews. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So, we have nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Nothing comes from nothing. And then, our real subject today, the nothing that Cordelia gives to her father as praise. Her sisters, Goneril and Regan, have just praised him to the skies. Lear asked for it, of course. Like any good king, he wants to be praised. Any good king, I say, but what's so good about that? Would we say that about a person who holds power over people and demands to be praised? I said good king when I think I meant like any typical king or any typical famous actor or billionaire or president. Praise me, everyone. I have a clip here that I'm not going to play. You may have seen it. A cabinet thanking their president. Some of them look happy. Some look like they have a gun to their head. None of them looks very natural. They look like hostages. They don't look like people. And why should they? Is it normal to praise someone who has power over you and who demands it from you at that moment? Are you effusive on command or are you false and artificial? 
gratitude might be practiced, might be rehearsed, but effusive gratitude, isn't that spontaneous? Can't that only exist with spontaneity? Doesn't it have to be? To be real, doesn't gratitude have to be offered and freely given, not demanded and performed? But Lear, alas, Lear was not majestic enough to know that. Let's hear some more from Christopher Plummer, who was himself a fantastic Lear in a production directed by Jonathan Miller, which I was lucky enough to see at the Stratford Festival in Stratford, Ontario. And really, if you're looking for a fun summer place to go, you should consider going to Stratford. It's a small town, about 30,000 people, but it turns itself over to theater and live performance every summer. And the plays are good. They're excellent. You can go for three or four days and watch five or six plays. Maybe a a couple of Shakespeare's, (laughs) as our former president once said. I read two Shakespeare's. (laughs) You could watch a couple of Shakespeare's. You could watch some, maybe a little Gilbert and Sullivan, if that's your thing. I saw a play by Michael Frayn there once. It was very good. Uh, There's usually musicals, Cole Porter. And that week you can, or that long weekend, you can stay at a bed and breakfast and drink tea and eat scones and settle into the mindset of someone who is about to attend the theater. And as you walk the streets, window shopping and waiting for your next play to begin, and everyone around you is talking about the play they just saw or the one they're excited to see next, it's really, really fun to be in that atmosphere. Now, let's hear the star of the year that I went, Christopher Plummer talking about Lear and how unmajestic that King Lear really is. Kill That's what I saw in the Lear you did with Jonathan Millett. I saw a clarity and a cleanness yeah. of language that in one sense seemed sparse, but in another sense was totally full. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it totally exciting. Well, it takes a long time to get that. It, to, it takes a long time many, many years before you can really stand absolutely still on the stage and say something so simply that you don't have to work at it or imbue it with, a, with an emotion that you think it needs because it doesn't need that emotion. It has given it to you the way it's written. Just say the words, baby, and shut up or go home. <laughs> and it takes a hell of a long time to, to learn to be able to do that. And I think I did achieve it in King Lear, and and I think um, I give Jonathan Miller most of the credit for that because he was always after me to do that. He was always bringing it down. Now a lot of people, some of the New York critics thought that he demeaned the part of King Lear by bringing it down. They don't understand that um, that you can be noble and small at the same time. I don't know where this idea of the nobility of Lear ever happened. He's certainly not a noble man at all. He's an absolute bastard. Yeah. And really a, a peasant king. What is this, what is this nobility that everybody thinks is there? So true. Where is this nobility? This is not a noble king. Shakespeare knew. Shakespeare was presenting it as a flawed king. In many ways, a peasant king, as Plummer says. Now, let's bring this full circle, just like a zero, come to think of it. And we'll come to the launching point of the play that we're going to discuss today. This is the moment in Act 1, Scene 1, when King Lear, who has decided that he wants to crawl toward death unburdened, 
is giving away his kingdom to his three daughters. The two eldest, Regan and Goneril, have already responded to his demands for praise, showering him with compliments. And now, it's Cordelia's turn. She's her father's favorite. And so he settles in, greatly pleased with the effusiveness of his two older daughters and expecting an even greater response from Cordelia. And Cordelia says... Well, let's hear it. Our Cordelia here is Anna Calder Marshall, and our Lear is Laurence Olivier. Our our joy. (laughs) Although our last, not least, for whose young love uh, the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive for the interest, what can you say to gain a third more opulent than your sisters. Speak. Nothing, my lord. (laughs) Nothing? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing will come of nothing. I speak again. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more nor less. Now, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest it may mar your fortunes. Good, my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as our right fit, obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sisters husbands if they say they love you all? Happily, when I shall wed, that lord whose hand shall take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters to love my father all. Goes thy heart with this? I, my good lord. So young, so untender. So young, my lord, and true. Let it be so. Thy truth, then, be thy dower, for by the sacred radiance of the sun, here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquent again property of love, and as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this forever. Good my liege. Peace, Kent. Come not between the dragon and his wrath. I loved her most and thought to set my rest on her kind nursery. Hence and avoid my sight. So be my grave, my peace, as here I give her father's heart from her. It's an incredible moment. After two grand, windy speeches, I love you more than words can say, well, I love you even more than that, and so on, we get this from Cordelia. Nothing, she says. It's shocking. You can feel the audience gasp. Shakespeare was one of the first generations of English schoolboys to learn what a zero is. The Arabic numerals had just been imported. A zero, a crooked digit, a cipher, as he called it, that could stand for tens, hundreds, thousands, and millions. The concept fascinated him. He returned to it again and again, absence as a form of presence. Here he was in Henry V. Oh, pardon since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us, ciphers to this great account, on your imaginary forces work. 
Was Shakespeare himself a nothing, a cipher? It almost seems that way as we piece together biographical evidence. There's so little surviving evidence of his actual life that theories of alternative authorship have survived and flourished for centuries. But maybe that's appropriate. Maybe that's appropriate for the man who, more than any other writer before or since, could breathe life into an astonishing array of characters. Here's the great 19th century critic William Hazlitt talking about Shakespeare and his ability to disappear into his characters. Shakespeare was the least of an egotist that it was possible to be, said Hazlitt. He was nothing in himself, but he was all that others were, or that they could become. Shakespeare would have enjoyed this, I think. He liked thinking about zeros, which, after all, is a thing when you see it on a page. It's a figure like any other. You can have one of them or many of them. You can count them. You can erase the zero and be talking about something real. And yet it stands for something very different. Like any idea and any genius, the complexities of this fascinated him. So this idea that he himself, by being a nothing, could actually become quite a something, the way the universe is mostly nothingness, or the way that being can be defined in opposition to nothingness, the way that adding zeros to a one can increase the power of that one by ten and by one hundred and by one thousand, those are the kinds of things his beautiful mind liked wrestling with. And in his case, if we follow Hazlitt and do a bit of speculating, we can imagine that Shakespeare would have liked the idea that removing yourself as an author enables you to inhabit the minds and motives of characters so fully you become the greatest of geniuses. Subtract an author to be an author. Something comes from nothing, after all. Shakespeare was obsessed with nothings and nothingness, and King Lear, our subject today, is all about nothing, the concept. The heart of the play is this nothing that we hear from Cordelia. The king wants praise. The beloved daughter offers nothing. But as we'll see, it's not a nothing. And neither is our show here today. <laughs> a little joke. We're examining King Lear today on the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay. 
Okay, welcome to the show. Let's get started. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for joining us today. We have a lot to cover, and I want to catch up on a few things. My thanks, first of all, to everyone who has written reviews on iTunes and other places. It is truly gratifying to hear such kind words from people enjoying the show. And the emails and the comments and the tweets, I love them all. Thank you so much. Please keep them coming. I get a little behind sometimes, but I do try to respond to everything if I can. Let's run through a few. On our Writers at Work show, I posed a trivia question. We all know of writers, I said, who have given up their day job in order to write. Are there any successful writers who gave up a writing career in favor of a day job? I had one example in mind, the French poet Rimbaud, who quit writing poetry at the age of 21 and became a merchant for the rest of his short life, never writing again. Nobody guessed that one, but one listener mentioned Radwan Nasser, the Brazilian novelist who wrote several critically acclaimed novels in the 1970s only to give up writing in favor of farming. He described farming as a similar act of creation. The pleasures of growing crops from seeds and working the land were similar to the pleasures he had derived from managing words on the page. And he was very successful at agriculture. I read somewhere that he eventually ran 10 farms. A great example from our listener, Jeff Daffern. Here's another bit of business. This this one, this was from our episode on Pablo Neruda. I talked about the great readings that we had gotten from the 1990s, thanks to the movie Il Postino. We have Julia Roberts and Glenn Close and Andy Garcia, all of these icons of the 90s, reading Pablo Neruda's poems. And I cannot get Andy Garcia out of my mind because of a misreading. I played it during the episode, but I didn't comment on it then. I I didn't want to disrupt Neruda. I didn't want to take away from the magic of Neruda. But I thought I'd play it for you now. It's It's kind of stuck in my craw. How does this happen? How does, how does something like this happen? Poor Andy Garcia. It's a straight reading of the English. It's his interpretation, but he gets it wrong, I think, and nobody in the studio seems to have noticed. Let's take a listen. And now you're mine. Rest with your dream in my dream. Love and pain and work should all sleep now. The night turns on its invisible wheels, and you are pure beside me as a sleeping amber. Okay, okay, let's stop there. Did you hear anything unusual? The night turns on its invisible wheels. That's the line. That's how it's supposed to be read. Revolving, rotating, the night wheeling in the sky. That's what night is, right? Stars moving, or maybe it's the... The change, the turning from twilight to midnight blue to darkness, that's how I understand it. That's how night feels to me. That's how I understand it felt to Neruda. That's what he was conveying. That's how it is in the original. And the translation here is turn, as in a turning, the night is turning. It's not turning on. (laughs) What exactly makes the night turn? That's a mystery. My guess is it's the stars moving through the sky or the color of the night, but it could just be how night feels when you're small and vulnerable and contemplating the universe. It is as though invisible wheels 
behind the scenes are bringing about this beautiful change around you, this turn, this revolution of the night. Let's let's listen again. And now you're mine. Rest with your dream in my dream. Love and pain and work should all sleep now. Mm-hmm. The night turns on its invisible wheels. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> oh, Andy. The night turns on its invisible wheels. You have a night with invisible wheels that get turned on? What? What is that? What would those be? A night. We have a night. The stars are there, the moon, the beautiful dark sky. And then what? The night somehow turns on some invisible wheels. It turns them on? What would these be? How would we know that wheels are turned on if they're invisible? Maybe we feel the breeze from the wheels. It's like those little handheld fans. That's what I'm picturing. Invisible handheld fans. Little wagon wheels spinning around. Battery powered. Night's invisible wheels. It it clicks them on. So we go from Neruda's majesty feeling the night turning, feeling the universe revolving around us, the two lovers. We are the point of stillness. We marveling lovers. We are the point of stillness. And the heavens move around us. That's Neruda. And here comes Andy Garcia. We are looking up at the night sky. And the night responds by switching on some invisible wheels like plastic handheld fans. Whizzing and whining away in our face. That's the best you have, <laughs> Andy Garcia. That's a crime against poetry. Come on. Okay. Okay, maybe I'm angry they didn't choose me. I was available in the 90s. I could have read alongside Ms. Roberts. But then, as iTunes critics have pointed out, thank you, I don't really have a voice for radio. Thank you very much. So maybe not. But I would not have had any damn invisible wheels getting turned on, whining around. (laughs) There are the wheels. Oh, those invisible wheels again. Haven't you haven't you done that when you're out there with your lover? Come on, knight. When are you going to turn on your invisible wheels? It's dark now. We're waiting. Okay. Enough of that. Back to the business. I need to thank a few Patreons this week. This week we're thanking our show sponsors, Arwin Vanderswan. Peter Lewis, and Elaine Boylan. I just cannot tell you how grateful I am for people who have gone over to patreon.com slash literature and helped me to free the show and myself from the restrictions of advertising, at least for now, an easy way to contribute to the show's costs for a dollar a month or $5 a month or whatever you can, whatever you would like. I'm trying hard to make this work. And what a service I'm providing. Who else will call out Andy Garcia for misreading a line in Pablo Neruda's poetry? Who else has the courage? I'm not afraid of the blowback. I welcome the hatred. But seriously, I really do appreciate the generosity. And we still have room for more patrons. 
patrons, patrons. Last time Oliver Twist made a special pitch for more gruel. <laughs> well, this week it's just me here at the workhouse, and I'm doing a little special pleading myself. So please head on over to patreon.com slash literature and consider joining our happy little club. Ah, we have some more news too, but let's save it for next time because we need to get to King Lear and the nothing that is actually full of all kinds of something after this. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You gotta have something. the four great tragedies of Shakespeare, Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, and Macbeth. At their heart, they are all simple stories. Lear was literally a fairy tale, mixed with politics, mixed with tragedy. You can argue that Lear is too tragic. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but let's start with the fairy tale, because that's important. I think that's important for understanding where Shakespeare's sources came from, how he changed it, the genius that we see and the changes that he made, and also how that impacts our response. I found several different versions of this fairy tale or folk tale. Often it's called Love Like Salt or something similar. There's a version that comes from India and a German version and an Italian version, which may have been Shakespeare's model. The essential story is that a king has three daughters or three children. He's doling out his inheritance, and he's planning to give the kingdom or as in Shakespeare, the largest third of his kingdom, to the daughter who loves him best. In some versions of the story, the first two daughters say, I love you like gold, or my love is like diamonds. Sometimes it's my love is as wide as the ocean. Sometimes it's sweets. And the third daughter says something different. My love is like salt. Or sometimes water and salt, and the king is outraged. Water, salt, such commonplace things. Is that an insult? He banishes the third daughter, and then later he learns the truth, and the older daughters are ousted somehow, and the king is reunited with his younger daughter, who it turns out loved him best. Shakespeare changes salt to nothing which really gets at the core of it, right? It's not just a trick. In the folktales, the idea is that salt, which is used to flavor everything and also to keep meat from spoiling, turns out to be essential to the king, as does water. In some ways, those are the greatest gifts of all. They keep you alive. They're like saying your love is like life itself. But in Shakespeare, we have the very modern concept of saying that you're, you, all you can give for your praise is nothing which starts us thinking. And the focus, as Cordelia tells us, is not just that a simple object might turn out to be more valuable than gold or diamonds in the right situation, but that words themselves mean nothing compared with actions. She sees through the flattery of Regan and Goneril. What are those as compared with the hard work of loving someone, of loving a father through thick and thin, in sickness and in health? Everyone knows what this is like. Everyone with a family who has lived long enough to see people in different states of need. It's easy to say you love someone and then go home. How about taking care of them when they are struggling to walk? Or when their mind is starting to go? Or if they have long-term care needs? That's love, right? 
a demonstration of love. It requires a love. Not just saying something like, well, sir, my love is like an ocean. Cordelia sees that. She recognizes it. And a few others who are there point out, comment that actually what she's saying is truer, as she herself says. Lear tragically fails to see the truth in what she says, and it plays out very quickly. Lear wants to divide his kingdom to give away his money, to release himself from the burdens of kingship, but he still wants to be treated like a king. And now we're getting into the politics. I don't see this as a particularly political play. Shakespeare, I think, has made this broader than that. He's talking about the phenomenon of aging, of the way that generations replace one another and how an old man might cling to power even as power begins to fade. How do we do that? How does that happen? Money. That's the key. The body may be frail, but money is still in your possession, and with money or land ownership, you still have power. Give that away, and you give away control. Where's your power now? A quick side note on the politics before we get back to the human. People much smarter and more steeped in English Renaissance history than me have pointed out that this play being written and performed at this particular time was not a coincidence, and it was, in fact, a very political act. Here we are. Elizabeth has died, replaced by James as the king of England. James, as a king, was in a particular position to unify England and Scotland. He was on the thrones of both, and he was, in fact, the first person to use the phrase Great Britain. I think he was the first. <laughs> maybe I'm misremembering that. One of the early adopters of the phrase, maybe he was the first king to use it. Shakespeare's company performed Lear for King James in a private performance on the day after Christmas in 1606. So that's what he wants, James. That's what he wants is unification, and that's what he sees in the play. Not unification exactly, but the absence of it, the breaking apart, the unification that disappears and dissolves. The play shows what happens when you break apart a kingdom. And in some ways, that suggests that kingships, kingships, <laughs> kingships should tend towards unification, not just out of kingly ambition, but because it brings about peace. That's a lesson one could draw from Lear, and it's one that would have pleased James sitting in the audience. Would it have pleased the others in the audience quite so much? James's sons were in the audience too, Prince Henry and Prince Charles. Those two had a string of titles, including the titles of Duke of Albany and Duke of Cornwall, which are also references to Scotland and Wales. And here we go in the play, the two sons-in-law who marry the ungrateful daughters, Regan and Goneril, are named Albany and Cornwall. Take heed, King James. Your sons sitting in the audience with you might not be as grateful as you think. Uneasy is the head that wears the crown. That's astonishing, really, that Shakespeare did that. He was pretty fearless. Personally, I think he had I I think he had less of an agenda as it was the case that the situation just excited him. <laughs> the situation and the way that it it would blend into humanity and the human condition, that's how I picture Shakespeare. Seized by ideas, fully immersed, writing his head off, writing in a frenzy and thrilling to the exploration that he was undertaking. I'm sure he'd seen old men struggling to give away their fortune or cling to it, and the consequences of giving it away prematurely. 
or maybe he's imagined it. Either way, it's very believable. I've talked a little bit on the podcast about my strange career and the twists and turns that that it's taken. One of them is that I've spent some time with politicians in a very close and intimate way. And another twist is that I've spent some time with billionaires. And the same thing, a close and intimate way, I've seen them up close and vulnerable. And I've seen them get old and tired and wish that they could give away responsibility but keep control. That's the thing that money can't buy them. If you have control, you will be responsible in the eyes of shareholders or law enforcement, if nothing else. You can be a figurehead with no potential liability for what happens, but then you don't have control. Some people in the twilight of their life will happily make this exchange. Some want to but can't. Some, tragically, like Lear, make it happen and are unhappy with the result. What happens for Lear is that he wants to live with his daughters and bring along 100 of his knights as sort of a super entourage. 100, that's a lot of knights, but then again, he's a king, (laughs) a former king now, or he was a king, but hard to give up some of the trappings of kingship. Maybe he was worried about his personal security. But as soon as he's maybe felt some loyalty toward the knights who had served him, but as soon as he's given away his land, his daughters suddenly say, well, why do we have to have all these knights around? They're eating, making noise, acting like sailors on leave. It's disgusting. This is our home. We are going to get rid of some of these knights. And Lear, the great king, the man who has always been told yes for years and years, like all kings, and never been told no, says, How can you get rid of my knights without my approval? That's no way to treat a king. Well, no. You're not a king anymore. That's really the plot of the play. It's simple. But it's not that simple. It's the same story that can be told over and over again in families all over the world. Parents age. We say, you should move into this house. I'll give you this house. I just want to come and visit sometimes. How will that go? Or this, a parent says, I'll give you my business. I'll just swing by and visit a few customers now and then. Stop by the office. Greet people when they come in the door. And hey, why are you changing everything? I liked it the old way. You didn't check with me. You didn't ask my permission. This is all Lear and his two eldest And yes, they're kind of monstrous in the play, Regan and Goneril, but there's a kernel of something true there that's not so monstrous. You gave me the kingdom. You're not in charge anymore. The knights, well, that's a bad decision on your part, and we can't live with it, and why should we? This is our property now. You don't own it. Your knights were ruining it, so we had to take action. That's politics, but it's the politics of a family. Shakespeare's getting at here. There's a modern tendency to say, well, why don't we take this situation and apply it to a family? Jane Smiley's book, A Thousand Acres, does that, setting it all in Iowa. It's an interesting idea. Instead of a king, why not just make this a family story about a family that we could all relate to? But, although there's room for that, look at what we get with Shakespeare. We get not only the great family story, at its heart, a man with two daughters, recognizable to all of us who are 
living in a family. But we also get elevated stakes. This isn't some local store or some small house we're talking about. It's a kingdom. Kingdom with riches and treasures beyond what most of us could ever achieve. When Regan and Goneril inherit, they're coming into a windfall that most of us would thrill to receive. Imagine all that land, all that power. When Lear gives up that power, he gives up a life that most of us can only look upon with envy. It's more. It's us. It's recognizable. But it's more. Why do we care about the Kennedys or the Bushes or the Royals? Why do we care about celebrities and who they're dating? Or the smallest office politics in the White House? Who's in? Who's out? Who gets along with who? Because the stakes are higher and because it affects us, those of us who do not govern but are governed. That's what we get in Shakespeare that we might not in a book about farmers in Iowa. We get the analogy of the state as a family, and we see that played out in actual terms. Is the head of state a father, a parent, and if so, what kind of parent? Firm, authoritative, decisive, brash, sometimes reckless, or kind, nurturing, thoughtful, some combination We talk about the government sometimes. The government is a beast or a many-headed monster or an institution, an invisible force. But it's all people, right? It all comes down to people, humans. And the family as a microcosm of the state is always there for us to think about. We might reject the analogy. We might embrace it. It might suit our purposes and our beliefs sometimes and not others, but it's there. It's part of understanding who we are and of understanding the difference between effective leadership and ineffective leadership. So we've come through the fairy tale and the politics. Now let's answer our question, is this play too tragic? Or maybe we won't answer that, but let me explain why that's a valid question, one worth spending some time with. So we have this in place right from Act 1, Scene 1, words versus actions. Lear takes words. He loves the flattery. Cordelia sets a different idea in motion that it, it should be one's actions that matter. And we in the audience already know that what's going to happen here. We might wish that Cordelia could have just come out with a few less honest ways to say it, but we know what's going to happen, right? Cordelia will have a chance to redeem herself, to leer, to prove herself, to prove her love through her actions. Lear will come to understand that she's the one who truly loved him, and they will be reconciled, and the kingdom will be happy again under Cordelia, who will treat her father with the respect and love that he deserves. That's the structure of the fairy tale. That's how those end. I love you like salt. What? Salt? And then by the end, oh, right. Salt is plain but essential. That's a good love. Sorry I doubted you dear daughter. Those diamonds and golds from the other two didn't help me when it came time to keep my meat from going rancid. We are set up for this by the structure of the story, and instead, we get a tragedy. And even as far as tragedies go, it is especially hard to bear. Dr. Johnson, the great big bear of English criticism, the sharpest mind maybe ever to write about literature or the English language, 
the author of a dictionary, the first dictionary in English, that overwhelming, forceful, giant personality, Dr. Johnson, thought the tragedy in Lear was too much to bear. Because it's not just Lear going mad out there on the heath by himself in the storm. That would be bad, right? We expect the fairy tale. We're set up for the fairy tale and the happy ending. And Shakespeare says, oh, no, this is going to be a tragedy. So what do we expect when we understand it's going to be a tragedy? Lear out on the heath in the storm and the 80-year-old man goes mad. He probably has a stroke, first of all. That's contemporary textual analysis that he has a stroke. But he's slipping. He's losing it. He loses his ability to be coherent. And that's our expectation is he'll slip into insanity and die, paying the price for his folly, for letting his pride and vanity dictate which of the daughters he believed, and he chose the wrong two. He should have chosen the one who would have nurtured him. We think that's the tragedy, right? But no, that's not enough for Shakespeare. He has another character whose eyes are gouged out, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I mean by too tragic. That's not what made Dr. Johnson almost fear the play. It's not what scared him. The moment that he thought was too much. It's a a curiosity about this play. It has a curious role in English literature. For 150 years, it was not performed in England as Shakespeare wrote it. Was it because it was too much? That's my theory. A different play with a different ending was performed instead. And Dr. Johnson, who had grown up watching that play, which was called The History of King Lear, it was by a man named Tate, that play had a happy ending. Lear regains his throne. Cordelia is married to the good brother. We haven't talked much about this subplot because of time, but there's a a good brother named Edgar who is wronged by his jealous half-brother Edmund. Cordelia marries Edgar at the end of the adapted play by this guy Tate. And Edgar cries out at the end, Truth and virtue shall at last succeed. That's the kind of thing Shakespeare might have written if he was writing for money, giving the people what they wanted. But when we, when we see him at his full creative power, when he's diving deep, He went for the tragedy like a submarine zooming toward the bottom of the ocean. And what he found there was not the tragedy of the king losing his sanity and maybe dying of pneumonia. No. First the king, half mad, but still aware, maybe. This is one of the frightening things for those of us in the audience. Is it more awful that he knows or that he doesn't know? What arouses our pity more? Because what happens is he comes on stage half mad, full mad. He comes on stage holding the body of the dead Cordelia. It's like nothing else in theater, or at least I can't think of anything like it. Dr. Johnson, who, remember, was in the middle of a 150-year period where the play wasn't performed in that version said, I read that once. It was unbearable. Thank God we don't perform it that way. Dr. Johnson, 
who loved literature and loved Shakespeare, said the sight of Lear holding Cordelia, the one daughter who loved him and who had been willing to take care of him, who would respect him and care for him even as he went mad and was powerless, the sight of this once proud king holding the daughter that he has in a sense killed by empowering her sisters who will order her death, and us not really knowing if he's mentally capable of fathoming everything or if he's just reduced childlike to holding something he once loved, like a small child holding a dead pet or a wilting flower. Reading of this, said Dr. John, he didn't even see it, didn't even see it performed in dark theater, just reading the text and seeing that this is what happened said Dr. Johnson, made him grateful for the happy ending version because it was so hard to endure Shakespeare's ending. He didn't think that he ever read it again. That's powerful. I think it's because it's the fairy tale that has set us up, the fairy tale ending that's right there for us in the structure of the narrative, and then it's yanked away and we get something not just more horrible, but something extremely more horrible in its place. Cordelia, in our fairy tale, the narrative we're expecting, should triumph. She deserves no less. We expect her to triumph, and for that to happen, we need Lear to be happy as well, or else Cordelia's triumph would be meaningless. Shakespeare makes us stare at a world where this doesn't happen. Truth and virtue do not always succeed. The good people do not always prevail. Sometimes, the storm wins. Okay, normally this is where I say that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, but I've left so much out. I have to go through a bit more at least. Let me limit myself to three other aspects of King Lear. First, the language. And in particular, the insults. This might be the best play of ins- full of insults in all of Shakespeare. The invective here is high. I don't think it was ever higher. Here are a few. This is <laughs> These are just lines grabbed from all over the play. An admirable evasion of whore master man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. What a brazen-faced varlet art thou. You whoreson, cullionly barbermonger. Thou whoreson, Zed, thou unnecessary letter. I think that's my favorite. I think that's my favorite. That's Shakespeare thinking. <laughs> Shakespeare at some point was angry at the letter Zed for being unnecessary, and he managed to work that into an insult. Thou whoreson, Zed, thou unnecessary letter. Here's another one. Thou art a boil, a plague sore, an embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood. False of heart, light of ear, bloody of hand, hog and sloth, fox in stealth, wolf in greediness, dog in madness, lion in prey. (laughs) On a roll. This is the foul fiend Fliberty Gibbet. Thou art a traitor. False to thy gods, thy brother and thy father. 
from the extremest upward of thy head to the descent and dust beneath thy foot, a most toad-spotted traitor. (laughs) Boy, Shakespeare on a roll. Is anything better? Here's Lear complaining about Goneril after he has seen her true colors. Here, nature, here, dear goddess, here, suspend thy purpose. If thou didst intend to make this creature fruitful, into her womb convey sterility. Dry up in her the organs of increase, and from her derogate body never spring a babe to honor her. If she must teem, create her child of spleen, that it may live and be a thwart-disnatured torment to her. Let it stamp wrinkles in her brow of youth, with cadent tears, fret channels in her cheeks, turn all her mother's pains and benefits to laughter and contempt, that she may feel how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Away, away. Very famous. Here's Kant. Kant. <laughs> Here's Kent. Encountering Oswald. Now I need to think about what Kant would say about Oswald. Maybe think about Immanuel Kant. Encountering Oswald. See if see if Kant could have come up with anything this good. Kent. Here's Kent. Fellow, I know thee. Oswald says, What dost thou know me for? And Kent, Kent and Kent says, A knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats. A base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted-stocking knave. A lily-livered, action-taking knave. A horse-on-glass-gazing, super-serviceable, finical rogue. One trunk-inheriting slave. One that wouldst be a bawd in way of good service and art nothing but the composition of a knave. Beggar, coward, pander, and the son and heir of a mongrel bitch, one whom I will beat into clamorous whining if thou deniest the least syllable of thy addition. (laughs) Wow. Emmanuel Kant. (laughs) Emmanuel Kant was... (laughs) He did more than just walk around thinking his thoughts, coming up with his categorical imperative he he could let oswald have it okay enough of that oh i haven't talked much about the other characters in the play gloucester kent edmund edgar albany cornwall the fool they're important like mirrors they reflect the different attitudes toward lear the different states of his power the different moments of his understanding and confusion they have their own stories and storylines as well and they're pulled into the vortex of lear and his family I didn't have time to go through them all, but I'll say that the themes and dilemmas, as so often in Shakespeare, are intricately woven. They mirror one another. They tell us new things. They show us things in a different light, or they echo the main action on the stage, the primary plot. And finally, let's talk about Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy hated King Lear, the play. He thought that Shakespeare was overrated. He wrote an essay about it, which I could walk through, but George Orwell already has in his essay, Lear, Tolstoy, and the Fool. So let's focus on him instead. Orwell points out that 
Tolstoy claimed that Shakespeare was worthless and King Lear in particular was awful. He thought or claimed that the reverence for Shakespeare was only due to the propaganda of German theorists in the end of the 18th century, and he thought the reasons for the plays being so widely performed was due to a kind of mass hypnosis, or as he put it, epidemic suggestion. One's first feeling is... Here's Orwell talking about it. Quote, One's first feeling is that in describing Shakespeare as a bad writer, Tolstoy is saying something demonstrably untrue, but this is not the case. In reality, there is no kind of evidence or argument by which one can show that Shakespeare or any other writer is, quote, good. Ultimately, there is no test of literary merit except survival, which is itself an index to majority opinion. Artistic theories such as Tolstoy's are quite worthless because they not only start out with arbitrary assumptions, but depend on vague terms like sincere, important, and so forth, which can be interpreted in any way one chooses. End quote. That's so Orwell. Taking on the language, showing it's where it's precise and where it's inadequate, where an argument can be supported by language and words, and where the argument is impossible to support with words, to substantiate with words. We miss Orwell. (laughs) Oh, we could use Orwell today. He continues, Properly speaking, one cannot answer Tolstoy's attack. The interesting question is, why did he make it? But it should be noticed in passing that he uses many weak or dishonest arguments. Some of them are worth pointing out, not because they invalidate his main charge, but because they are, so to speak, evidence of malice. (laughs) Oh, we need to do an episode on Orwell, I think. Orwell is one of my favorites. So he knocks down those arguments, and then he concludes that Tolstoy mainly disliked Shakespeare because Tolstoy, especially later in his career, was to narrow the range of, uh, was trying to narrow the range of human consciousness. Tolstoy prepared for his own old age and eventual death by simplifying, trying to reduce, preaching austerity, giving up one's wild mind and body in favor of something more orderly, something more explanatory, a kind of faith, a purity, which he found in Christianity. The humanism in Shakespeare, Shakespeare unbound, Shakespeare uncontained, spilling over, Shakespeare unlimited. That was not the approach to literature or life that Tolstoy was trying to make, was prepared to make at the later stage of his life. Here's Orwell again. For Tolstoy, quote, One's interests, one's points of attachment to the physical world and the day-to-day struggle must be as few and not as many as possible. End quote. Shakespeare stays in it. Shakespeare embraces the struggle and reflects it back at us. Orwell also notes that Tolstoy himself had a curious similarity to to Lear. Tolstoy renounced his estate and his title. He wanted to simplify, to live a life unencumbered, as Lear did. It disappointed him to that effort. You might ask me, well, who's right? Who wins? Shakespeare against Tolstoy. And I can only smile and say, 
The world came out on top. Humanity had its say. Reality won. In the great contest of Shakespeare versus Tolstoy, the winner, it seems, was life. Okay, that really is going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Orwell's a nice way to end. Language begins and ends Lear. The false praise at the beginning and the failing language at the end. Language breaks down for Lear as he goes mad. His ranting words don't make sense. And at times he repeats words as if to make them true. Repetition. Here's a line in perfect iambic pentameter. Never, 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 never. (laughs) God, I love Shakespeare so much. Orwell is kind of our patron saint of examining language and power and politics, of testing it for truth, of being suspicious of spin. Shakespeare got there first, of course, but Orwell had a similar deep understanding and a commitment to it. And the examples are still there for us today to analyze, sometimes every day, sometimes every hour. Remember to go check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash literature. Rank us and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We truly do appreciate it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 